0: Hello and welcome to the Sorbonne Mesa podcast with me, your host, Alan McGuire. Today's episode is a continuation of the last one, uh, which was on the history and current state of Spanish feminism, which most, as most of you will know, has boomed in the last four or five years. But there's a reason for this. It isn't just clever marketing or people wanting to go out on the just the 8th of March to celebrate. There are real issues. Um, that are uh, directly or indirectly affect um, women in Spain, and this podcast was created to bring you the contemporary issues of Spain beyond sun, sangria, and flamenco, um, and that's what I will be doing, and I hope to do today, and continue to do in the future. Unfortunately, with with this with this promise and the purpose of this podcast, we do have to discuss some less than um, pleasant things. And one of those is the topic of today's uh, podcast, which is gender violence. So gender violence is the term used in Spain for crimes against women that include rape, sexual assault, and murder. We will be talking about these topics today. So if you're affected by any of these or likely to, um, find them upsetting then please do consider just listening to one of our our, one of our other episodes we have plenty um the reason we are talking about these issues in the spanish context is because this podcast is about contemporary spain this isn't to say that spain is the worst in the world of this um on, on these issues but it is a very um it is an issue that is discussed a lot uh, in the media in Spain and it is something that is discussed um, by all political parties, whether they're um, for the term gender violence or against the term gender violence. Um, gender violence is often referred to as domestic abuse in the UK. Um, so, yes, that is the reason for bringing you this interview. It isn't to single Spain out against all the other countries but it is to bring you a contemporary issue is the reason for the uh, boom in recent Spanish feminism and this and as I said this comes around the laws regarding what is rape and what is sexual assault and the the murders uh, And with me today to discuss these issues, I have uh, Deborah Madden. Deborah is a um, researcher and a postdoctoral fellow at the Institute of Feminist Investigations at the Complutense University in Madrid. Uh, She's currently uh, researching and examining sexual violence in contemporary Spain. Um, And she's conducting research into this. She's written several articles on the issue. Uh, So welcome to Sobre Mesa, Deborah.
1: Thanks, Alan. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, I'm I'm sure you prefer Deb, right, or Deborah? Either's fine. Either's fine. Either's
1: fine. Anything that um, puts me on a par with Deborah Hardy and Deborah Francis White, and I'll I'll take it. So,
0: so, I mean, the first, I mean, so I think it's quite a big thing for people that um, haven't been to spain or haven't been in spain in recent years that and it's certainly been a big story since i've been here that sexual uh, domestic abuse um but all the, all the way from um from sexual assault all the way up to murder has been a huge issue um for, and it's not been ignored or anything by the political parties, but it's um, it's quite a big campaign, you know, it's, it's a big, it holds a big area and elections and, um, you know, sexual assault, violence towards women and, and rape, they are all huge topics.
1: Yeah, absolutely, I think that's very fair to say and I think that there's two main reasons. That gender and sexual violence is particularly significant in the Spanish political spectrum, and I think it's related to rape culture and abortion legislation, both of which have been hugely polemical issues in the last 10-15 years. So, um, of course, we've got this um, extremely notorious, well-known La Manada rape case. Mm -hmm. Um, that takes place in 2016, in which an 18-year-old woman's corralled into a lobby by five men during the Pamplona Women with the Bulls festival in the middle of the night, um, and she's raped. They film it on the phones, and then um, the Spanish court decides to convict the assailants of sexual abuse rather than rape, for reasons that we can can get into in, in more detail as the conversation goes on. And also, as I say, in terms of abortion legislation, Because we have um, a slightly more liberal liberalization of the 1985 Abortion Act. introduced by the by the socialist government in 2010 which has received backlash ever since from the conservative um, people's party and as as i'm sure all of your listeners know that's one of the huge pillars if you like of vox's political identity is to try and not only reevaluate the way we look at gender and sexual and domestic violence um mm. which is some sort of feminist conspiracy apparently but also to over overturn all of the abortion legislation and of course we saw a huge um backlash from women um, as part of the of the of the freedom train it was called to um push back against attempts by the then um by the then sitting people's party government to um Introduce further restrictions to the abortion law, quite like what we've seen um, in Portugal in January of this year. Mm. um, Sorry, not Portugal, Poland in January of this year, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: um, in terms of, you know, huge manifestations as a result. And this is, of course, what we saw um, in terms of a feminist backlash against the initial Lamanada rape case. So I think the reason that these two elements are particularly important is they show how precarious um, women's sexual freedoms and um, bodily autonomy are in Spain in a way that, for example, for a British audience is quite quite almost alien to us. There's never been any real threats against abortion legislation since the 67 acts passed. Um, And La Manada rape case, for example, really brought to the fore the problems of the legal situation, and the legal situation regarding sexual assault and sexual abuse. Um, And sexual abuse, of course, is is the hot topical word if you like because in finding the perpetrators of Lumana case guilty of abuse rather than rape, that's you know effectively um seen it as a lesser as a lesser crime because according to the original judgments there was no evidence of um violence or intimidation. Now any circumstances in which there's five men and an 18 year old woman Violence and intimidation, I think the majority of the civilised world can recognise is very much implied, if not um, overtly obvious. And not only that, not only was the law itself extremely problematic, and that's what, you know, really, really came to the fore with that case, but the way in which it's interpreted as well. Um, so, for example, um, there was a second um, La Manada, Wolfpack, inverse of commerce case, um, I'm sure you will have seen in Catalonia. Mm -hmm. Um, in which a 14-year-old teenage girl is gang-raped by a group of seven men um, on Halloween night, as I recall. And again, the court finds only evidence of sexual abuse rather than rape. In both cases, the the women are penetrated. It's not a a reflection of um, the way in which the sexual abuse manifested itself, if you like. It's more a fact of, well, how do we prove intimidation? How do we prove violence? And in the second case in Catalonia, the reason that this is all the more um, alarming, if you like, is that one of the individuals has a gun. Um, and as I say, there sort of the, the numbers um, in terms of, you know, five men in the first case, seven in the second, and these, these individual women just shows the, um, you know, the absurdity of trying to look for, you know, concrete evidence for something that is, you know, inherently... Inherently um, subjective, and as a recall for the for the first lemonade case, um, just to show how politically charged these type of legal discourses have become, um, it was suggested in a very perverse misrepresentation of feminist discourses. Well, to find these men guilty of rape would, to, would suggest that a woman's not capable to consent to group sex with five men. Now, I do not propose to speak for all women but five men that you don't know in um you know in a stairwell that's not on the bucket list of sexual liberation and activity you know it's um you know as i say like absurd the way not only the way it's written and legislated but the way it's interpreted Mm.
0: yeah and i mean i one thing that that I, i they tried to spin it somehow but the I think some of the people in the original case were were they police officers or, or... yeah
1: there was a member of the guardia civil
0: uh-huh. and a
1: member of the army
0: and they tried some of them even tried to leave as well didn't they they had they had to have their passports taken off them yeah um, and yeah and still they were prosecuted uh, was it they they were eventually prosecuted under sexual assault or how they... did the case play out in the end.
1: So what happens is um, in the first trial found, they're found guilty of sexual abuse uh-huh. um, and there was a, um, an escalation um, in Nevada again. Again found guilty of sexual abuse and then when it goes to the Spanish Supreme Court we have a conviction for rape in which actually um, literally echo in the legislation and the current sexual violence and sexual abuse laws in Spain what if the judges said there's very clearly evidence of intimidation here, and mm. uh, the reason um, the reason that the law as it stands is so you know inherently problematic is the fact that it it presupposes that they want you know evidence of a woman physically fighting back, um, which as we know any any um, anyone that's done any research into sexual violence is that is not how um, survivors, women experiences this, experiencing this type of violence, react, mm. you know, freezing, freezing, lying in the fetal position, as the woman in La Manada case did, eyes closed, desperately wishing for it to stop and hoping mm. that she gets out it's a bit alive, mm. is a completely human, natural reaction that the Spanish law just completely and utterly doesn't account for.
0: I mean, now we have a... Um, and uh, it has been criticised, but it's uh, the Ministry of um, Equality with Ana uh, Montero, who is a you know very prominent feminist in Spain. Um, have what changes have the current government made to uh, any of these laws?
1: So, in terms of changes, we had um, draft proposals approved um, in March two thousand and twenty, that's still yet to be um, officially. Um, ratified, but we mm-hmm. have what's been known as la um, the Ley Montero, after as you say, Irene Montero, wow. um, in which um it would define all non consensual non-consensual sex as rape, also known as the solo si es si, and the yes means yes law, mm-hmm. um, in an effort to um completely and utterly re the way um rape and sexual violence is understood as part of the as part of the Spanish Legislature and we also have um, the suggestion of different introduction of um, particular rape crisis centres and specialised courts. The latter has been particularly criticised as foxes, um, you know, being a set up to um, um, unduly favour female um, female um, survivors. So none of these um, suggestions have been um, uncontroversial to say the least.
0: Mm. And I mean, it's it is quite a big thing that's on a lot of the Spanish radar. I mean, Pedro Sanchez tweets every time there's yeah. you know, but there are a high number of murders as well. Um,
1: Absolutely, yeah, an alarming number of murders that as um, as we know have dramatically increased during COVID nineteen lockdowns, yeah. um, and the amount of calls to domestic um, to domestic hotline services one figure i saw that it is increased by almost 500 percent and and as we as we spoke about earlier we're both living in different parts of madrid but where i am and um, almost every single shop and you know when you go to the till has got a little poster up with information for a domestic hotline help center which again comes back to this um comes back to this um, a quality um, department of the of the department and part of their initiative to try and counter this. Mm. Um, and I'm sure as well you will have seen, for example, there's the, there's the so-called code word, um, masqueria women, masqueria 19, in which a, a woman can go into a pharmacy and say, "Oh, I need a you know a, a mask number 19," which means I'm a victim of domestic wow. violence. Please call someone and don't let me leave here without. Um, without being able to access, you know, the the appropriate services, as it mm. were, and yeah, I mean, obviously, it, it's indicative of something that, you know, we it's it's completely and utterly unproductive to try and dichotomize between law and society because the two are so inherently interrelated. There's a real symbiosis going on here, but you know, I completely agree with you in terms of numbers of deaths from domestic violence. There's some there's a real stark problem in Spain.
0: At the moment, you're researching um, sexual assault um, in the Civil War, is that right?
1: Yeah, well, what I wanted to do was, um, as we know, after the initial La Manada case, we have this huge explosion of feminist discourses in Spain and feminist Uh protests and women's strikes, um, which, you know, um, are under the banner of Cuéntalo, as in tell your story which is the the spanish-centric strand of the of the me too movement mm. and other things to this effect for example banners and hashtags with you know solo csc which reflects the the common law that i mentioned um, and you know it's violación it's rape as in it's not it's not abuse and one thing that i found quite curious is that arguably quite like the Me Too movement, it was almost presented as a, you know, now women have woken up, now women are responding. And as a, as a scholar of feminist um, feminist history in Spain, I thought, well, that's, it's a bit disingenuous to suggest that this has suddenly been born out of a vacuum
0: oh. or that
1: you know women in Spain had been sleeping until La Manada case, you know, mm. um, and that this reaction while in terms of scale, it's hugely monumental and not like anything we've seen before. It was something that I saw, you know, we needed to historicize a bit more effectively. Yeah. So what I um, wanted to do was, you know, go back um, into the earlier decades of the 20th century to see evidence of sexual abuse, how it manifests itself, and of course, how women respond to it. And this has led me down, um, down a trail of looking at female authored testimonies, um, in Franco, Spain, about the dictatorship and the civil war, the talk about their experiences of rape, often le- often politically charged rape, ideologically loaded, and to try and see the ways of women in this environment would talk about their experience of rape and how this fostered this same sense of female collectivity. Um, this sense of sisterhood as it's come to be known that's um, this um, term that's come to characterise contemporary Spanish feminism mm. and how we trace that back much earlier and how this cuentalo or mito is not an isolated phenomenon but part of a historic move of women collectivising and coming together to share their stories obviously by a very, very different platforms and media uh-huh. but nevertheless the sense of unity that... Um, common experiences of sexual assault or just the the acknowledgement that you we could all be a victim and we would all be subject to the um current laws if we were and how that um as i say forms a sense of solidarity
0: okay so you're saying there's very similar obviously very different times uh how did how, what are the differences and what are the similarities you've seen between um you know the time of the the repression of women during the franco time and the assault of women during Franco time and the um the sort the more modern version as it were.
1: Yeah. I think in order to answer that we need to recognize these two um different cultural and political bodies as it were or communities that have been constantly in tension with one another in Spain, and this goes way back before the Spanish Civil War, we can trace this back to the Carlos Wars, in terms of we have, on the one hand, nationalist, monarchist Catholicism, Uh and on the other hand, a more feminist understanding, of course, in terms of, you know, um, quality for um, people of all genders, and um, secular, republican, ideologies and these are the two um, forces that as we know you know explode in this bloody bitter civil war in the 1930s but as I say it it predates that in terms of these type of conflicts and you know evidently as um, many more um, historians have argued convincingly continues to continues to arise so I think it's this insidious nefarious nexus of nationalism and patriarchy that characterises Francoist discourses that um, leads to um, such um, alarming um, cases of sexual violence, particularly within Francoist prisons. And for example, just to give you an evidence of this, um, a- an example of this, there's the um, nationalist um, soldier, buyano whose name probably probably rings a bell, and during the Civil War in one of his radio addresses to the nationalist forces, celebrates the soldiers and for, in his words, um, showing these cowardice reds, meaning, you know, the the Republican leftists, what it means to be a man, and also showing the women what it means to be a woman. At least now they'll know what real men are and not, his words, queer, inverted commas, militiamen. So um, he's inciting them to commit sexual violence. In order to um, physically impose on them this sense of masculine and patriarchal superiority, mm. and we have that um, evidently arising again and again um, throughout Francoist prisons. Um, and in terms of the the contemporary climate in which we are living, as you mentioned at the beginning, you know one of the one of the individuals charged in La Manada case was a member of the Guardia Civil. So this. I don't mean to, um, in any way, undermine it by by using such colloquial language, but you know this boys' club, as it were, that continues to dominate. This sense mm. of machismo continues to dominate, because you know, I mean, um, I'm not suggesting anything, anything um, revolutionary when I say you know the transition to democracy doesn't negate these um, conflicting and um, dominating cultural, cultural, political forces, and um, mm. that you know continually come up in um come up in, in Spanish politics. And for that reason, in terms of the way in which women are seen um, by Spanish culture, I think as, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning, the what the way in which the law is not only um transcribed but also interpreted. We're not looking at the female body as you know autonomous human individuals. And it's for this reason that we haven't been able to re-evaluate or um develop our um you know Spain's collective understanding of how women and sexuality should be treated so I think we're the the, you know there's a lot of similarities there it'd be completely disingenuous to suggest anything of the sort that women are in any way in the same situation as they were during the dictatorship I mean the, the suggestion is absurd but nevertheless the development and the improvements haven't, as we see with these cases, been sufficient.
0: Mm. And you talked about, um, you know, the, the medium, you know, they were writing books and, and you know, now we have Twitter um, and one of the, I, re- I read one of your papers, um, one of the authors that you looked into w- was uh, Lydia Falcon. Could you tell us a bit about, about her? Yeah,
1: so um, Lydia Falcón is um, well known. She was originally a communist, um, certainly leftist, anti-fascist, um, feminist activist um, during the regime. And she's frequently imprisoned for her activism. Many um, many listeners will probably recognize that in more contemporary press articles, she's attracted a lot of criticism for her um, gender critical um, stance and comments on, on the trans community, but that's, that's for a different podcast. Yeah. Um, but she um, she was a very um, outspoken critic of, um, of the regime. And as I say, for this reason, she's in prison, spent a lot of time in detention centres. And she's created this text um, in El Infierno, so in Hell, um, about her experiences in these detention centres, in which she juxtaposes her own accounts with the experiences of other female prisoners. So in the sense that we have this tangible plurality in terms of voices so you don't feel like you're just reading falcon's story you feel like you're getting a whole broader picture which you know i would argue can be seen as like an embryonic form of the of quintal me too hashtag in terms of yeah me too me too me too and this is what this text seems to be doing we've got all sorts of different women from different walks of life that nevertheless are imprisoned and suffer the same type of um, sexualized and gendered violence at the hands of these um, franklist male prison guards.
0: Wow. And um, she was very much, um, she was very much like, it sounds like she was uh, sort of um, targeted a bit for, for the book. And, you know, it wasn't very, um, I don't know what the word is, uh, how was it received? Was it?
1: Well, this is the thing. It's a curious, um, it's it's actually quite curious in the sense this there's been some work done on female author testimonies, um, like Gina Herman, for example, of Chris who's in a fantastic article on um, some examples of um, these um, female experiences from Francoist prisons. But there's not been that much scholarship in the area, and this in part is sort of an attempt to you know try and catch up as it were. And I also think it's like, you know, there's an argument for the fact that Falcons and El um, and, for example, um, demands about rape laws or um, sexual autonomy in post-dictatorship Spain, it wasn't necessarily on the forefront of the feminist movement, because while feminists in Great Britain, for example, or the United States, are legislating for um, abortion and pushing towards sexual freedoms, women in Spain... Are still the legal property of the husbands or fathers, and then as we know, it's you know it's not 1975. Click our fingers, and you know women have, um, liberty. So for that reason, we see an incredibly and um, courageous and fe- and um, arguably effective feminist movement that's nevertheless hugely stunted. So when she creates this text. That's talking about you know, violence against women's bodies, um, sections that look at you know forced abortions, all forms of gendered and sexual violence. This is at a time when you know divorce wasn't yet legal when this mm. is, is when this is released. So I also think we this is part of the, the benefit that we have, you know, nowadays of being able to um, return to, so if you like, these type of texts that at the time for however um, important they were saying where, you know, there was was bigger fish to fry, as it were, you know.
0: Right, yeah. Yeah, I suppose that's why it's not as... Because, I I mean, I read the description of the book and I was surprised I'd never heard of it, to be honest, because, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: And I only managed... You can't get a copy in the National Library of Spain um, in in Madrid, and I only managed a copy. I got it um, from some... Online seller on eBay, and there's a chapter missing in my copy, wow. and I not a copy. And I won't, I won't bring tears to your eyes by telling you how much it cost me. <laughs> <laughs> so that show you know it's completely out of print as well, which is just
0: wow. And uh, so, I mean, what is next for for um, for domestic violence and and um, sexual assault? I mean, there's the laws that are pending to be um to be confirmed yeah. and passed but what what are some other big issues um that are standing in the way of or of overcoming these these two specific issues that we've been talking about
1: i think the constant pu- pushback from the political right is a huge one um you know for example i'm sure you will have seen so in january of 2021 there's a there's a, a mural of um, leading women on the side of a sports center. The yeah. box have suddenly decided two, three years after it's been put up to go into a complete meltdown about. So never mind if there's a huge snowstorm that's brought Madrid to a halt, never mind the huge amount of COVID patients and deaths. There are women on the side of a building. <laughs> 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 like, it's it, it is like laughable. So we've got this constant pushback from, as I say, from the political right predominantly led by led by the Vox Party. And I also think as well, it's going to take this huge culture shift. And obviously the law and culture are interconnected and they sort of work off each other. And mm. um, they're certainly not isolated bodies, but by the same token, to change the law is not going to change, not going to change the mindset. And I think another piece of legislation, hopefully, might be quite um, effective in shifting our understanding. Of, um, of gender and women's roles within Spanish society, which is, you know, the upcoming democratic memory law, which is an update of the 2007 historic um, memory law, um, mm. which explicitly notes the um, um, need for recognition of particular types of genders and sexual violence and women's role in the civil war and dictatorship. And hopefully this will, um, you know, allow, allow for more research into sort of, as I say, looking back um, at these female figures and seeing how that relates to the way that feminist discourses have have evolved. Because there's always this, um, I'm sure your other guest who talks about the history of Spanish feminism will, will note this fact, but there's this somewhat um, snobby almost view from Anglo-feminism um, feminist in Spain was very slow, not particularly effective, very conservative, because of course we've got the huge amount of illiteracy in early 20th century Spain and the you know the insidious influence of the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. So for this reason, as I say, Spanish feminists haven't always been able to achieve what in predominantly Protestant countries was possible and um, within the right. same time frame. And I think that we need to recognise the achievements for what they are and the context in which they're in. Which they're in. Mm. And it's hopefully by sort of through the combination of these laws and the way in which we can look at society through a different prism, it will, it will, you know, it will improve. And I also hesitate to say that you know, forms of education, and I don't mean this in any way, a propagandistic way, But as you say, you know, the amount of domestic violence, um, particularly during COVID, in terms of, you know, husbands literally killing their wives, you know, it's beggar's belief, really. So I think that, you know, um, empowering women and trying to sort of get this shift in consciousness and, as I say, changing laws to reflect reality, as it were, Mm
0: -hmm. will
1: hopefully sort of, you know, lead us um, towards a more... um, I was gonna to say towards more equal society, but I don't even mean that. Just towards a society in which a woman who gets raped by seven men can get a rape conviction with video footage. I mean it's it's not asking a lot, is it?
0: No. I mean, and yeah. Thanks very much for your for your time, Deborah. You're very welcome. Thank you, Deb, for your time and insight into this issue. Now, we could go into data, uh, but it should be said that different countries collect um, data on gender violence in different ways, how they categorize it and how they collect it is all completely different. But as I said at the the beginning, Spain is, um, you know, not one of the worst in Europe or even the world relating to gender violence. Uh, In fact, I know a lot of females who say they feel more safe, you know, they feel very safe walking home in Spain. And remember, gender violence is normally related to people they know. So it's normally related to husbands, boyfriends, ex-partners, and those sorts of things. Um, And the other thing that should be said is that it's a very, you know, it's a very country-based thing. Um, This is happening all over the world. Uh, It's not just happening with the feminist movement. It's also happening with race. You know, Black Lives Matter was was a global event. Uh, in response to the murder of George Floyd. But with regards to gender violence, there have been events in uh, France that have had a similar effect on the feminist movement there. And recently in my uh, home country, the United Kingdom, uh, this this interview was recorded back in February. But sadly, since then, uh, a woman named Sarah Everand went missing on the 4th of March. She was walking home in London. Um, She was a marketing executive and she was walking home by Clapham Common and uh, after talking on the phone with her boyfriend, um, she never made it home. Uh, Her boyfriend reported her missing and she was later found on the 9th of March. Uh, Someone has been arrested in connection um, with this crime. He he happens to be a police officer, the person that's been arrested Um, and he will go to trial um, soon. And the other thing, and and this did lead to consciousness raising within the feminist movement in the UK. Um, And days later, there was a, you know, a peaceful visual uh, at Clapham Common where she went missing. Um, And the police uh, broke it up, you know, the the women stood there with masks on socially distance with um, candles and flowers and police um, come along and violently took them away. Pictures went all over the internet. Um, so, sadly, this um, the death of Sarah Everett has had a similar effect um, to the Lamanada case did in Spain. Thank you for listening to the Sobremesa podcast. <laughs>